Hey guys, John Paulamy here, Actionable Intelligence. Today is Saturday, June 18th, and this is the weekly market update. Again, the disclaimer, anything that you hear or see on this video or podcast is not to be taken as investment advice. I am not a financial advisor. I cannot give you financial advice. Each person is different. Everybody has their own temperament, their own risk tolerance. Please do your own due diligence. It's your money. It's your responsibility. Okay, before I get started, I want to talk a little bit about what's happening in the markets. I'm getting a lot of, of course, emails and messages and comments, you know, what should, what's going to happen, what's happening, what should I do? Um, guys, as I've said before, I'm just a guy on the internet. I can't give you individual investment advice. I can't tell you what to do. Um, what I have said in the past, and I'm going to repeat is you have to have a plan. I've told this to people before, get yourself a notebook and write down inside that notebook, your investment plan, take some self stock of yourself. What are you trying to accomplish? What are you comfortable with? What are reasonable expectations for returns over the long term? Understanding the difference between speculation and investment. I think a lot of people, you know, don't understand a lot of these concepts and they're putting live money to risk. And I try to remind people many, many times, the people that have been watching these videos for a long time will hear me reiterate this occasionally, especially during market drops. So, I mean, this last couple of weeks has been very traumatic. I mean, I think it's some of the biggest drops, back-to-back -back drops in the market or consecutive uh, falls in the market that we haven't even seen ever or since like 1928 or something like this. So this is kind of uncharted territory, unprecedented territory, and this will scare people that, number one, don't have a lot of experience Number two, don't really understand what they're doing. Don't understand basic concepts of investing. Number three, don't understand their own temperament and psychology and what they're able to endure. And so, you know, we get into this, let me flail around, let me find somebody to tell me what to do. We can't do that. Everybody's different. My risk tolerance is different than yours. My position in life is different than yours. My um, ability to understand things may or may not be different than yours. So, um, you know, I've, I've, I've counseled people in the past, you know, the things that we have in the newsletter for the most part are very speculative type things. They're going to be extremely volatile. Um, we are obviously late cycle in a economic expansion, probably in a recession already. I'm going to show you, I don't like to forecast economics because it's very difficult. Most people with PhDs don't do it, but we can, you know, start putting together some patterns and understanding what's happening. You know, I'll show a chart later on with uh, mortgage rates. Mortgage rates have, you know, doubled in many cases. Yes, this will have a, it's easy to uh, understand that if you double interest rates, the ability of people to service a mortgage or to get a mortgage and service it with their income, okay, changes, and it will change the ability of certain cohorts of people to get into houses, housing being a very large part of the economy, because when you buy a house, you have to buy appliances, and you have to buy furniture and drapes and all that stuff, you know, a lawnmower, all the stuff that goes into being a homeowner, you know, down to, you know, a hose to wash your car or water your lawn. I mean, light bulbs, it goes into these things. So um, it has a ripple effect in the economy. That's pretty easy to see. Um, and so, you know, we still have supply chain issues left over from the COOF. And now we have this basically World War III, this splitting of the unipolar world into a multipolar world, which we've seen even more of that this week. Uh, with the meetings they had in, in uh, St. Petersburg, I believe, with China and some of the other people in the um, Southern Hemisphere. 
which I'm not going to get into that. But I'm, what I'm trying to say is we have a lot of things going on, okay? And, you know, we have energy prices that are really, you know, because of, like we said before, lack of investment, ESG, all these different things, government making bad policy that's exacerbating things. You know, that's having effects. We have a lot of plates in the air. So, you know, looking for a simple solution is not a good thing. So one of the things I've counseled people on, if you have gains, you know, a lot of people, like, especially people that just join the newsletter, they watch my videos and say, oh, this guy seems to know what he's doing. I'm going to join the newsletter. I buy a stock and it goes down. Now, what do I do? So, or just, you know, trying to catch the dip. I don't think people understand, you know, in the short term, anything can happen. I can't forecast what's going to happen on a week to week, month to month basis, but we can look at trends and see, see longer term trends. That doesn't mean you just ride the volatility. We've talked about volatility in the past. You know, if you have very large gains, you should be, you should, it goes without saying, I should have to tell you this, you should take some down. You know, we've put out emails on the free emails that I send out to get out of gold a while ago because it wasn't performing. That's worked out pretty good. Now, I do think longer term over this decade because of the inflationary policies that are going to have to be pursued by governments, that gold's going to do tremendously well. But in the short term, it's not performing. Um, the same thing with base metals. If we're going into a recession, uh, you know, one of the things I was counting on or looking at was China coming out of its zero COVID policy and doing a bunch of stimulus to help overcome some of the weakness in the Western economies, but that's not happening now. They're back into the, so there's a lot of things happening minute to minute, day to day. And so, you know, being in the resource stocks, which is a large component because of our portfolio, because it's been doing very well uh, up until the last couple months, uh, these are speculations, okay? And these are not, you know, burning match. These are burning matches. You don't buy and hold. So you have to know the cyclical aspect. You know, the indicators I'm looking at that I share, and I'm going to share in the July newsletter, it's pretty obvious that in the past, they have shown us that we're going to have a recession. And, uh, you know, that's appears to be happening now. And so, you know, in a stock market, bear market in stocks, 95% of stocks are going to go down. And I've said that before. So be aware of these things, okay? Um, don't be in a hurry to catch a falling knife or a falling safe. Um, you know, if somebody throws a safe out the window, it's got a million bucks in it, you're not going to catch it. Let it hit the ground, stop moving, no more kinetic or potential energy, and then we can crack the safe and uh, make money. So um, cash is good, raising cash, taking some profits down. It doesn't mean, you know, like in uranium, there's, we have some significant, we had some significant gains in uranium because we bought so cheap. Okay. So if you just bought and you're down 30%, well, you know, your temperament, your risk tolerance is going to have to tell you whether you have to take that, take that loss or, you know, what you don't want to get a situation is understand a lot of these junior resource stocks. I'm going to reiterate this. They have no earnings. They have no cash flow. And in a bear market, when liquidity shrinks, these are the first things that are going to get sold down. It's conceivable that we will have record uranium prices this decade. I have no doubt about that. In the meantime, a lot of these uranium stocks could go down 80 or 90% from where they're at now. That's pretty typical. So be aware of that. That's why I've been cautioning about that for, for a long time. So that doesn't mean it's going to happen. It could happen. Um, so we'll have to continue to watch what happens and pivot as necessary. But, you know, I've been talking about this now for a couple months and my indicators are very, very clear. Now, there are ways to make money. You know, we mentioned uh, shorting high yield debt last uh, via the SJB ETF. That's performing. It's not going to make you a millionaire, but it's going to be better than holding cash. And we have not seen the we have not seen the default cycle of of these companies that, that are on the margin anyways of being able to pay their debt. Okay, we haven't seen that because zero interest rates or very low interest rates enabled them to be zombified, stay alive uh, on this uh, liquidity that was being produced by the federal government or by the Fed. So, you know, that cycle's yet to come. This stuff's going to start breaking now. They're going to keep 
as I said before, the Fed's going to keep raising rates till they break something, and then they're going to back off. You know, I'm going to show you a video and a slide later where Stan Druckenmiller talks about a fact that we've never seen a period where inflation has been 5% or higher, where the Federal Reserve, in order to get inflation under control, has not had, has had to raise rates above the, the rate of inflation to get it under control. Do you really think with inflation at 8.6% that the Federal Reserve is going to raise rates to 9 or 10%? It's not going to happen. The economy can't take it. So we're in, like I said, we're sailing in uncharted waters. So be aware of that. Okay, let's get into the uh, weekly report. So I put these things on here not to pick fun at people or to throw brickbats at them or to... What I'm trying to do is illustrate to you the amount of <sighs> bubblicious thinking that's out there, uninitiated people that were able to get themselves into financial situations that they probably, no one counseled them, they didn't have enough skill, they didn't have enough wisdom or education. And so this is the type of stuff that you see. It's not to pick on people, it's to educate people. There's a lot of young guys that come here. I know that from the demographics, okay? And part of what we're trying to do is not just give you hot stock tips or tell you how to manage your money, is to give you the wisdom, you know, that I have accumulated over 40 years of doing this. And my success was not based on initial success. There was a long period where I didn't have any success in these markets. And then I re-educated myself by looking at successful people to see what they would, how they did things and the wisdom they had. And it was common throughout the success stories. And so when I see these type of things, I want to bring it to your knowledge, not to bag on these people, not to dunk on them, but to show you the level of financial illiteracy and why this thing's going to get ugly, in my opinion. So this is off a Reddit board. Guy asks a question, what happens if you buy a house, then a few years later, the housing bubble bursts and the prices reduce? Say you buy a house at 500,000, pay for a few years, and then the house is valued at a lot less. This is what happens, right? As the bubble goes down, interest rates go up, the price of these houses is going to come down. We're already seeing anecdotal evidence of that. Does the money you paid on the mortgage essentially pay off the house faster? Are you owed money? I mean, this person has no concept of how a mortgage works, how valuations work, how changes in interest rates affect asset prices. This is, I'm not saying this is the main way of thinking, but this is illustrative of what I think is happening out there. You know, if you don't know the answer to some of these questions, and you probably shouldn't have bought a house that was worth a half a million dollars. And with easy money, this is the kind of malinvestment or malthinking, mal, you know, that, that goes on because, you know, interest rates are, are so low that it covers up a lot of sin. I don't mean sin in literal sense, but financial, you know, large yes. So here's another one, right? The, how do I take the money back from stocks? I decided stocks aren't my thing. Is there any way to get my money back? Refund. So you have a, you know, this person really doesn't understand how markets work and how things work, evidently. Says you can sell the stocks. Yeah, then the person will have to take a loss, right? I don't want to sell the stocks. I just want my cash back. Is that the only way? Yes, that is the only way. There's no refund policy on stocks. I mean, I'm not, like I said, I'm not saying the majority or even anybody watching this is this financially illiterate, but these people exist out there more than you think, okay? You have to educate yourself. Like I've said before, and, you know, people have gotten negative comments back to me on saying this, mostly because they got shellacked probably in crypto and things like that. You know, low interest rates and cheap money um, facilitate financial negligence by individuals, Okay. Um, these little anecdotal things that Warren Buffett says about when the tide goes out, we see who's wearing shorts and who isn't, or who's swimming naked. This is what we're talking about, you know, and everybody wants to make fun or think there's a new way or there's some magic formula. It's not a magic formula and human nature is the same throughout these market cycles, fear and greed rule. And, uh, you know, that doesn't mean that I'm like chuckling or thinking this is good. This person lost money and doesn't understand that the, you know, now, this, this danger here is, is this person should just go ahead and take their losses and get out of this and go to cash, even if, it's, if they're down 70 or 
What they're going to do is rationalize the loss and then think, I'm going to wait till it comes back. And then when I get even, I'll sell. This is the danger. Now, I don't know the rest of this conversation. This is just a snippet, but this is typical of what happens. If you're out of a loss and you can't take the loss, you should sell and take the loss. It's not going to come back. I've talked about, you know, when I worked at the Amico refinery, which subsequently became the BP refinery in Texas City, is now owned by Marathon. We had a lot of guys there right before the dot-com, right after the dot-com crash, if you will. And these guys had made millions of dollars. Some of them didn't even have high school educations. You know, when you work at the refinery, you make a very good salary. Even back then, 20 years ago, you'd easily make over 100 grand a year. I'm sure it's much more now. I know the board operators make like 40, 50 bucks an hour, something crazy like that. You work all kinds of overtime. So you work there 25, 30 years and you've accumulated quite a bit of money. So they got financial advisors, right? I mean, they had a big Merrill Lynch office over there in Texas City. It's kind of a grubby, you know, industrial town with refineries and stuff, but they had financial advisories there because all these guys had so much money and they didn't have a lot of literacy or education when it came to financial matters. And so that, you know, when the bubble burst and some of these people lost 80 or 90%, some of the companies they were holding, you know, if you're in your late fifties or early sixties, you shouldn't have been holding tech stocks as a majority of your stocks. And they did. And then I heard people rationalize to me, you know, we'd be on shift. They'd be lamenting about their losses and they would say, um, well, I'm just going to wait till it comes back. Well, some of the companies never come back. Look at Cisco. We've talked about it before. It was one of the darlings of the tech bubble. It took you know, Microsoft, it took a over a decade for these things to even get back. That doesn't mean they weren't making money. That doesn't mean they weren't producing products, but they were so overvalued that there was a period where they had to get undervalued. And that takes a long time. Okay. And that's what we've seen as we see this shift from tech to value that goes in like these decade long spans. And we're just at the beginning of this value um, outperformance in my view, but that's, a, that's another story. I just wanted to point this out. This is what you're going to see a lot of this. And a lot, this is why a lot of people get hurt because they just don't understand what they're doing. They have no education. They don't teach this stuff in high school and college. This is deliberately not taught. Okay. People don't understand things, simple concepts. You know, people don't understand the fact that when interest rates go up, the value of a bond goes down. And so you think you're buying bonds for safety and the value of your bond can go down, you know, 20, 30, 40%, just based on rates going up. Now that presents another opportunity as rates peak, you can buy bonds because the converse is true also. As rates come down, um, the value of the bond can go down. You can have tremendous capital gains. So there's going to come a point where like the 10 year max is out, the Fed's going to get rid of, you know, so if you're sitting on cash, same thing in high yield, it will eventually peak. We'll see a wave of bankruptcies. And then you'll be able to lock in some of these high yields, even through like an ETF. And then, you know, you could probably maybe lock in, you know, double digit. And as rates come down, you're going to have a tremendous capital gain. So understanding these simple concepts is what leads to financial literacy and enables you to outperform. And most people don't seem to understand these things, or a lot of them don't. I'm not going to say most, I don't, I don't know, but a lot of people don't understand simple concepts. So we've talked about this before, you know, the Fed, and I'm going to show the uh, Stan Druckenmiller comments here in a little bit. But the, but the market's way ahead of the Fed on raising rates. Fed's always behind the curve. They're trying to catch up, you know, three quarters of a point. You know, why don't you just come out and raise rates two or 3%? Well, they would have crashed the markets. That's why. They're trying to engineer this fantasy of a, soft landing, which I don't think they've ever been able to do. I think once they've been able to do that, and that's just where you really drag out the rate increases over a long period of time. They don't, for political reasons, they don't have that ability. I don't think they want to raise rates. I don't think they want to do any of this, but the political climate is such that inflation is the number one item on people's minds. And so they have to be seen as doing something. They know that uh, they're not as stupid as sometimes I joke about, um, they're a political animal and they're trapped in, they're trapped in a room, uh, that was built by people over the previous several decades. Okay. That got us to the point in the debt cycle where we're at, that there's really not a lot of options. 
And so they're trying to walk this trapeze, walk this highway. Now, I don't know why these people take these jobs. That's a whole other discussion. Why would you want to be involved in this? Why would you want this pinned on you? Why would you want to go down the history books as the guy, you know, that caused some big market dislocations, things of that nature. But maybe it's just ego. I don't know. But you see right here, you know, just how fast in the last week or so rates have went up. This is, I think, a week old. I mean, this is unprecedented what's happening, okay? Um, and this is going to price a lot of people, like I was talking about earlier, out of the housing market. And then the second and third order economic benefits of housing are going to be hit also. So this is why I think we're heading for a recession, how deep it, if we're not already in one. So I think the Atlanta Fed already pulled back second quarter uh, estimates from like over 1% growth to less than a percent now. So anyway, I like watching like PMIs, purchasing manager index, things like that. That's what the Fed looks at. Once the purchasing manager's index falls below 50, which is means that um, economic, uh, you know, people are not producing, it's in contraction. That's usually when we'll see uh, reversals. I don't know, you know, if the stock market keeps dropping like it is. We, you know, it's still way overvalued. A lot of these companies are still selling way overvalued valued, uh, um, prices. And so I think that's what you're going to see over time, right? Somebody described it as what we're going to see, and I kind of agree with this. We're going to have these waves, right, of inflation and then deflation. This is what we saw in the 70s and 80s. You know, you're going to see inflation, like, pop up like a, you know, I hate to use this analogy, but like a herpes outbreak. The Fed will respond. It'll roll over. And then you'll start, you know, being, you know, going into these mini recessions and all kinds of uncertainty. It's going to be very, very difficult to make money during these times. This is, this is the point I'm trying to make. You're going to have these constant, you're not going to have these 10-year economic uh, cycles like we've seen in the past or a long time where, you know, it can cover up a lot of your, you know, uh, problems because we're just going to have so much, so many things going around influencing, you know, and these big shifts between back and forth between inflationary mindsets and deflationary mindsets. That's, that's my view at least, but this is no joke. I mean, this is, uh, you know, this basically doubles the price of a, of a housing payment from just a few months ago. So this is a problem. And so this is from uh, bespoke capital. The, uh, this goes back to the like January, 1976. This is the largest destruction of wealth in modern, modern market history. This is the trillions of dollars of drawdown, drawdown being losses. And you can see where we're at. We're, you know, up to $15 trillion in market losses. And you can see like even the tech wreck was only about 6 trillion, the housing bubble around 9 trillion. And you can see now this, uh, this decline. So this is what people are feeling. This is what people are seeing. This is why people are reaching out. People are scrambling. You know, like I said, taking down your position, taking off risk is not a bad thing. It's sitting in cash and letting the air clear, let the fog of war clear. So you have a better idea of what's going on. You don't have to be fully invested all the time. And this is what's happening, you know, and uh, this is, like I said, this has really caught a lot of people off guard. You know, a lot of, this is why you're seeing a lot of you know, what happens is, is you have these losses, you have people that are in funds, investment funds, hedge funds. I'm talking about the limited partners that have the capital. You can't just pick up the phone and sell out of these positions. So what happens is the market goes down, the limited partners decide they want to cash in. You have to give 30 or 60 days notice typically. And so these notices come in. So selling begets selling. This is the reverse flywheel. If, you know, we've talked about positive flywheels in the past especially when it applies to uranium. It has a negative connotation also as selling begets more selling until it's all exhausted. And so this is the wealth destruction, the rapid wealth destruction we've seen, which is also exacerbated by computer trading and AI trading that just, you know, doesn't have any emotion and just is selling and buying based on uh, its programming. So this is, uh, this is, I'll put a link to this. I would watch this if I were you, Stan Druckenmiller's talking here. He says in this video, among other things, he says that once inflation gets above 5%, it's never come down unless Fed funds have gotten above the CPI. 
frankly, I don't think we'll get there because the extent of the asset bubble and the damage that would be done. Well, I agree with that. Um, I actually think that as soon as the inflation rate headline CPI rolls over, I think you're going to see the Fed pause. They're going to make it, well, see, we're going to, we want to see if our policies are working. I think you've got a tremendous, that's kind of the, like I said, the ups and downs you have to anticipate. That's what I think is going to happen because they don't want to keep raising rates and cause these huge economic dislocations. They know that we have a bubble. They know that assets are overinflated. They don't want to cause this massive deflation. So I think if we do see like oils come off quite a bit recently, you saw what happened yesterday. Um, if they can get the headline to roll over, I think that they would be pausing or pulling back, you know, um, and that would give them an excuse. And then they can always say, well, if it reaccelerates, they can say, well, we want to see what's going to happen. We want to see the effects of our previous policy because policy lags. That's, that's what they're going to say. That's what I think they want to do. And so you're still going to have negative real rates, which are still inflationary. So like I said, a lot of things going on, a lot of dynamics, and you really got to be on your game. But uh, I would watch this. I'll put a link to it. Um, it's pretty good. One of the things I don't like in here is he kind of says that, you know, hydrocarbon energy is going to go away because of ESG. I mean, a lot of these guys have bought into this. I don't think they really, maybe they have, maybe I'm the one missing the, uh, missing the boat on this, but I just don't see from a phys physics and engineering methodology, how you're going to replace hydrocarbons with wind and solar. But I know that a lot of people managing money look at it as a, as a, as a honeypot, as a trough to uh, make a lot of money, uh, especially if it's mandated by the government, you don't have a choice. Um, they want to be involved in that. So I don't know if it's all that or if they really have done the math and they and I'm missing something. Be curious to see what you guys think in the comments. So here's another Jesse Feld. This guy's actually pretty good. Follow him on Twitter. I like, he puts out a weekly, you can subscribe weekly uh, thing that he sends out a lot of good charts, but this is a uh, this is showing the policy gap between inflation. Okay, this is adjusted CPI and the real fund, real federal funds rate. Our new estimates imply that the current policy gap measured as the difference between core inflation and the real Fed funds rate is already roughly equal to the peak gap of the Volcker, Volcker, Volcker era, 12.1%. So we're already back into that late 70s uh, gapage here that uh, where we had tremendous economic dislocation and pain, misery index, if you remember that. And so uh, we'll see, uh, but we didn't have the over leveraged situation. We already had the stock market was already trading that, uh, you know, extreme lows. You know, things are a lot different now. We have over leveraged assets. We have all balance sheets um, of these governments way over leveraged. They just don't have the policy room that they have there. There's no way I guess they could. I don't want to say no way. There's always a chance. I just don't see them being able to deal with this like they need to deal with it. They need to come in with a shock and all. They, need to, they should have raised rates 2 or 3%. Just said, let's get this over with if you really want to deal with inflation. You would have put the economy. I mean, the sediment would have really got negative. You should have came out and said, we're going to crush this inflation. That's what Boker used to talk. We're going to get rid of this. And there would have been a, we would have been we'd have a deflationary depression and they're just not going to do that. It's not politically possible. The things that are required to fix the problems that we have are not politically possible. And the things that are politically possible will not fix the problems. And so this will continue until, you know, we go off the rails and have a wreck. And then only then when the pain is so great and there's no other option, will the right things be done? Like cutting the military budget like reforming entitlements, like dealing you know, with, with, with these problems that we have. In the meantime, they're just going to keep kicking the can down the road and, hoping for, and hope for the best and then get out of there before it's some, and it'll be somebody else's problem. That's my view. So we talk about inflation, these governments, we've seen, I, I keep showing these anecdotes or these various policies that these governments are coming up with. This is Austria's government promised taxpayers as much as a thousand euros in cash rebates each and further subsidies to help buffer the effects of soaring inflation. So let's give more money to compensate for the effects of inflation that the government itself through its policies helped create. You know, the ECB's had like almost 20, I don't even know how long it's been now, years and years of zero interest rates, years and years of inflationary currency creation. 
years and years of poor policy, overspending, debt, telling people they can have everything, telling people that they don't have to be responsible for them for themselves, that the government will do everything. And so now they create now these chickens start coming home to roost. And so the solution is give more money and just create more that it's like throwing gasoline on a fire is my point. And we're seeing more of this, but, but this is what they do, right? Because the election cycle, this is what politicians uh, care about. They're not going to come out and say, guys, we've got to crush this inflation. You're just going to have to deal with some hard times. They'll vote you out of office and they'll put somebody in there that will do it until it gets so bad that it, you can't have any other option. You know, Japan's bumping up against that now. They had a cap on rates for their government bonds and they were just printing more and more money. Now, you know, the value of the currency is starting to fall. And so now they're at that event horizon, if you will, of a black hole where you either let rates rise or you continue to buy bonds and your currency falls. So that's where you eventually end up with these policies, you know, with over 300% of GDP in debt in Japan, with a population that the demography is horrible. Uh, that doesn't mean Japan's going to blow up, you know, blow up and dry up and blow away. But, you know, this is a problem and policymakers have to deal with it. And there are going to there are going to be repercussions, which are unforeseen because we are in unforeseen territory. You know, it's very possible that instead of having a tech wreck or a housing, you know, thing like we had, that the wreck we're going to have this time is going to be government finances and government securities. I don't know. Uh, we don't know yet, but, you know, we are in a worldwide tightening cycle. I brought that up in the newsletter last month in June, or the, yeah, the, this month in the June newsletter when I published it, I talked about the fact that it's not just the United States, but the world in general is tightening, tightening rates to deal with this inflation. And a lot of it is because of the supply issues that monetary policy can't fix. You know, if you're going to sanction Russia, if you're going to destroy Ukraine and take off its productive capacity, if you're going to do these things, then there's going to be a lack of supply for raw materials and semi-finished goods that are required for the economic um, benefit of the rest of the world. We talked about food, for example. That's going to lead to possibly a lot of deaths. You put that on top of the COOF supply disruptions that are still were not solved when they started up World War III, then what do you think is going to happen? And so raising rates, the only thing you can do if you really want to deal with inflation is you have to crush the economy, crush the demand side to bring, because supply is down here and supply is down here and demand is up here. You have to bring demand down because supply doesn't able to increase because of you know, lack of investment, uh, sanctions, ESG, supply chain, all these different things, yet you know, the demand is, is increasing or as a, is, is in many cases inelastic for a lot of these goods. And so the only thing you can do is crush demand. Well, that causes recessions and that's not politically palatable. Recessions cause financial market dislocation. So this should not be that hard to understand. You know, I've talked about my king for a day, what I would do, you know, there's not going to do it. I mean, you have, for example, a problem in the United States with high gasoline and diesel prices. And it's exacerbated by the fact that the oil price doesn't necessarily drive the price at the pump. Okay. The problem is, is that you have a lack of refining capacity. Okay. You have shut down refining capacity in the U.S. because it's, it was uneconomic during the coup or before, and now now you have a lack of supply, but yet, and it's only at the margin. It doesn't have to be that much, and it causes a big jump in the price. And so the solution is, go according to you know the politicians, is go attack the oil companies, go out there and you know talk a bunch of rhetoric. The real policy should be, okay, you just shut this refinery down. We're going to meet with you. We're going to meet you halfway. You're going to start to, we're going to get this refinery running again. You're going to get all these tax credits, yada, yada, yada. And we're going to indemnify you against losses for the next five years, something like this to get that product back on market, because no one's going to make a multi-billion dollar investment to do all the turnarounds. Remember, again, it's not as easy as just snapping your fingers. 
why would you as Valero or Marathon or any of these refining companies step in and spend a billion, two, three billion dollars rehabbing one of these closed refineries? Remember, the stuff just sits there. It's not being laid up and maybe it's been stripped of parts. I don't know. You have rotating machinery in there, pumps, motors, turbines. If they haven't been serviced, if they haven't been rotated, the bearings are bad. I mean, all these little things you can think of, it takes a lot of time and effort to get things. Corrosion mechanisms have set in. When I'm talking about rust, okay? Once corrosion mechanisms set in, you have to deal with this. It doesn't just go away on its own. Plus the trained staff, okay? Plus the maintenance. Who's going to do that when you have the administration, you know, telling you to do this, but at the same time, increasing ESG, increasing regulation, and then attacking you you know, on, you know, telling you on one news channel to get out there and do what you do. And another news channel, another official telling you that you're going to put the, put the industry out of business, that you're going to raise taxes. You're going to, this is not how things work logically. Okay. This is just all rhetoric and nonsense that politicians say to get elected like this crap here, just giving money and exacerbating the inflationary issues. Again, here we go. EPA deals blow to major oil refinery, citing environmental justice concerns over toxic air. Look, we, we need to have regulation to make sure that we're not pumping out noxious fumes. But that's not the case in 2020, you know, 2020 or 2015, whenever. So all of a sudden now, you know, we're, gonna, we're going, we're, we're talking about high gasoline and diesel prices, jet fuel prices that comes out of a refinery. And yet we're going to demonize this refinery because of environmental justice concerns. In a groundbreaking move, the EPA questioned air pollution permits for one of the largest oil refineries in the Rocky Mountain region. The state of Colorado must now reconsider the permit issued to Suncor Oil Refinery, which has been spewing toxic pollution in excess of permitted levels for years. Well, has it? Environmental justice advocates and local communities welcome the move and continue their fight for change. So what we need to do is understand that industrial activity has effects on the environment. You're telling me that just now, um, this has been going on for years. I mean, we don't know the facts of what's really going on, but this is the kind of stuff. So we need to find a common ground here, not just, you know, uh, pull the permits and shut the refinery down. This is very confusing to people. And if they have not been meeting the emission targets, why has the state of Colorado, they have, they have an environmental department. Where is the EPA? All of a sudden now, just, just recently, they decided to, to, to get involved in this. It makes you wonder what's really going on. So in the meantime, um, Indian refiners are printing more money because they're using Russian crude. And I find this interesting and slightly amusing. You see, you know, one of the things I've talked about is the decline of the unipolar world that's controlled by the Atlantic powers into a multipolar world. You know, Sergei Lavrov has talked about this. Um, other people in China have talked about this. And uh, on a larger scale, like, for example, even like the Mexican president has talked about this. This is why they didn't, part of the reason they didn't attend the little soiree of the Americas that Biden had. The days of the United States and Great Britain and the Atlantic powers dictating, notice I don't put the EU in there. The EU is a vassal of the Atlantic, the Atlanticists of the US and Great Britain. And they just do what they're told. Um, that's part of the reason why, I'm not going to get into it, but uh, a guy named Tom Luongo talks extensively about this, that a lot of what you're seeing going on is to deal a blow to um, uh, the EU to weaken it further, to help enhance the power of the Atlanticists. You know, this whole, you know, world ocean, if you look at the world as a world ocean, this Eurasian landmass is that island in that ocean. And that's the last thing, I've said this before, it's the last thing that the Atlanticists want is, you know, a common economic block stretching from Portugal to Vladivostok, okay, with all of those people and all of those resources. Um, that's been kind of the thing that uh, Kissinger, Brzezinski, even further back uh, in the uh, 
times of the British Empire. This is why you had a Crimean Wars and stuff like that in the 1800s. I'm not going to get into all the history, but is to stop, you know, this Eurasian landmass from becoming this economic juggernaut with all of these people and all of these resources. So anyways, you know, India, the politicians in India uh, are going to make policy that's beneficial to India and Indians. That's what they're elected to do. They don't really care. What, what, why, why do they care where they get their crude from? They, you know, uh, are net crude importer. They have tremendous, I think they're like the third or fourth, maybe fourth or fifth, something like that, largest refining country in the world. And so what they're doing is they're getting a discount on Russian crude somewhere between $25, $30 a barrel. And then they're refining it and then selling that product at record prices on the world market. This is tremendous. Uh, why wouldn't they do this? It's called, you know, ec- you know, you show me the incentive, I tell you the outcome. And, uh, you know, this is how they, they, they don't care. It's like I was watching some programs of Indian commentators and they had some people on there from Europe and they were arguing and the guy told them, look, I, the, prop, the, the Indian comment, uh, show host was like, these are European problems. They have nothing to do with India. We don't care about what's going on in, you know, the poorest, most corrupt country in Europe. It's not our problem. Our problem, we have our own problems here. And we're going to do what's in our interest. You know, that's what it is. Countries don't have alliances. They have interests. So uh, people should realize that. This whole thing has nothing about to do. This is what people get caught up with, the normal, everyday person. Well, this just isn't right. Politics, geopolitics, real politics has nothing to do with morals or what's right and wrong. It has to do with what's pragmatic and what's best for interests in these various countries that control the political uh interests in the country. That's just how it is. I'm not saying it's right. I'm not saying it's good, but that's how it is. And if you don't choose to look at it that way, (laughs) you want to look at it from moralistic types of views and base your decision-making process for investing on that, you're going to lose money. You have to look at things for the way they are, not the way you want them to be. Especially when you have no control of the outcome. So Indian refiners, including Mukesh Ambani's Reliance Industries, are using cheap Russian crude to try to boost diesel exports, including to destinations such as the EU with sanctions on Russian oil. This is hilarious. So the EU has these fake sanctions because they can't exist without Russian oil and gas. It's just the math doesn't work. It would take years and years and years. And so what they do is they put the sanctions on. The crude goes to Russia. It's refined by Indian refiners and comes to Europe as refined products. But it's not Russian. It's an Indian diesel. It's an Indian jet fuel, whatever. And so that's how they rationalize it in their mind, these politicians. And of course, the average person doesn't really have a clue what's going on. So they're fine with it. Um, and so, you know, they can have their proverbial cake and eat it too. They can virtue signal about, you know, stopping evil Putin man bad, but and not, you know, financing the war effort. But in the meantime, and who makes out the Indian refiners and the clean tanker operators where clean tanker rates are going through the roof because you have longer longer delivery ton miles for this product you've interrupted you've as i've said before you've discombobulated the efficient supply chains that were built up through the globalist globalism okay that's all being shattered now as we transition to this multipolar world that's what i'm trying to tell you russia in may replaced saudi arabia as india's second largest supplier of oil behind iraq Russian crude exports to India are expected to increase to over 1 million barrels a day in June, according to commodities data and analytics firm Kepler. The shift means that Indian refiners could effectively replace some of the diesel Europe once bought directly from Russia or from refining Russian crude. Plus, exactly what's happening. It's going to continue to happen because energy transition isn't going to work and takes decades. It's not just going to happen because Ursula Vanda crazy dictates it from the European Commission. Stupid. And so this is what's happening in the real world, the real world where people live, not the fantasy world that the policymakers in Europe live. Here we go. Calvin uh, Froedge, I would follow this guy. He's pretty smart if you're interested in tankers. MRs, this is a class of clean tankers in Asia, now averaging over 70K a day. Globally, we're at 50K a day. feel like no, still nobody really paying attention. It's been like this for months now. He talks about a couple of companies here. Dividend's going to be out of this world. I was on a Spaces. Calvin was on here. He was giving some of his math on this particular tanker company, which is in based in Norway, I believe. 
when you say at the current rates um, and the current stock price where it's at, not reflecting what's really happening with these rates, um, possible 40% dividend yield with the dividend policy that the company has articulated based on the cash flows that he has modeled with these higher rates, could be looking at a 40% yield, okay, uh, when the dividends start getting paid. So something to take advantage of. Do you think that uh, the status quo is going to remain? Do you think that the war is going to end tomorrow or the next month or two and all the sanctions are going to be lifted? We're going to go back and be friends again and everything will go back to normal. That's never going to happen. The Russians have even said that. They've given up on the West. Maybe that just could be rhetoric, but I just don't see the Western Europeans backing down. Uh, what's going to happen is the economies there are going to deteriorate to the point where there's going to be economic dislocation and then it's going to cause political change. The timing on that, I do not know. It's, uh, we'll see what happens this winter. There's not enough gas. We'll see what happens uh, when there's not enough oil. We'll just see what happens. Um, hopefully, it won't be a harsh winter. But you see some of the problems with the sanctions. For example, on Nord Stream 1, what happened the other day evidently was, you know, you have gas turbines that turn compressors because the gas in the pipelines have to be compressed. They have compressor stations along the pipeline to keep the pressure up in the, of the gas in the line to keep it moving. And I guess these gas turbines, a couple of them broke down and they're Siemens gas turbines. And of course, with the sanctions, Siemens can't service the turbines. And so they sit there. And so the volume of gas that's traveling through the remaining pipeline of Nord Stream 1 has decreased. Now, this very well could be that the Russians have done that and used this as an excuse. They could have just floated this story. I don't know exactly where the turbines are in the pipeline. I don't know if it's actually factual, but this is the kind of things that start happening. You know, guy in another spaces was talking about, you remove all of the Western oil field services companies from Russia. And because of the technicality of a lot of the Russian oil fields, you have a tremendous amount of electric submersible pumps that are used, okay? And as these things break down and wear out, and they do break down and wear out, I mean, there's only two major suppliers of these, according to this guy, was like Baker Hughes and Schlumberger, something like that. You know, the Chinese just don't make these. The Russians don't really make them themselves. I guess they could try to engineer them. But you're going to see as these things start breaking down and you can't replace them, you can't get parts, you can't get the technical expertise in the country, then production is going to go down. So you see how all of these things you know, has Ursula van der Crazy and Robert Harbeck in Germany, the economics and green minister, thought about these things? I don't think so. This is why I'm still long-term bullish on energy, even with the current, you know, downdraft that we're having from what I consider oversold territories. Remember what I was talking about earlier in the year, or even late last year, that, you know, if we saw $80, $85 a barrel in 2022, we were going to be ecstatic. We're printing money at $80 a barrel Brent. Okay, and we've been over 100 now for a while. So, you know, if we stay in a range of 80 to 100, you know, over a couple of years, we're going to be doing quite well. And I think that, you know, because of the economic ups and downs we're going to see, we're going to see vacillations in that oil price. But I don't know if the floor is 50 anymore or 40 in a recession. We'll see. But this is, this is what's going on out there as you know, these two slides kind of are made it together, right? If you're refining the crude, instead of just refining the crude in Russia or Russia-owned refineries in Europe or European refineries of Russian crude, you're now shipping the crude to India, think where India is, refining it, and then shipping it on these tankers to Europe. Just think of how far you have to go through the Suez Canal, the Mediterranean, to Rotterdam, or to ports in the south of Europe, or around the Horn of Africa, I don't know, but this is greatly increasing the time and cost. And so that's why you're seeing, you know, these opportunities are going to pop up. And if you're aware of them, you can take advantage of them. I don't know how long it will stay like this. Um, I'm just pointing out a fact of what's happening right now. Uh, we have a clean tanker company in the portfolio, and it's exploded higher recently. It's uh, one of the largest clean tanker companies in the world. It's making tremendous amounts of money. So we'll see how long this trend lasts. But, you know, again, you're not just going to go out and build a bunch of clean tankers now to take advantage of this. Uh, if you wanted to. So I think we may be entering this part of the cycle for these particular classes of ships. We'll see. Which is being caused, of course, by government 
policy. Okay, this is not normally what would happen. Okay, um, we have like I said, we've discombobulated the efficient supply chain for diesel and jet fuel and gasoline into Europe, and so things are going to shift to other places as the free market tries to fix the problem. Uh, you know, they see those high prices in Europe, lack of supply, and then it's going to try to be filled. So this is what happens. And so, you know, we talked about it earlier, you know, this is OPEC plus OPEC plus with Russia crude exports. This is even with Russia now announcing that it's crude exports really aren't declined that much since this whole conflict started. So this is 2022 here. Obviously, this is uh, 2021 here um, or 2020. This is 2021. Um, you can see that, uh, you know, we started the year, uh, exports were going up. Now they're, they're kind of like, they're not, they're not increasing. Where's the spare capacity? And so we have Mr. Biden asking for OPEC to raise production. They just can't. We've shown that chart. Um, here it is again. This is from Bison Interest, Josh Young Shop. This is the OPEC plus monthly deviation from output targets in millions of barrels per day. Uh, I mean, this is even with Russia, right? Last month, which is April, I mean, they're 2.7 million barrels below the quota, okay? They just, the market doesn't seem to be understanding that, I mean, this is getting like worse now. You know, we had the average going back to like the beginning of 2021 was like a million barrels a day, okay? And now we've seen this big drop off in April and May um it's and this is the cumulative production misses versus quota i mean this is not good this is not going in the right direction this is not positive for oil prices okay now this is why you know this might be this situation of underinvestment is now manifesting itself in lower production in opec that's the point and has the market picked up on that does the market understand that i mean the saudi oil minister has basically said that and so I don't know what people are thinking about, but, uh, you know, in a, re a recession could derail this and could, could, could dampen the effects of this, but this is a problem longer term. This is why I'm fundamentally bullish on energy long-term. Um, just to talk about recessions, you know, oil demand has fallen only 10 years out of the last 60. This is very important. You know, this is 2020. This is the coup. During the coup, we shut the entire world down. Oil demand only went down 9%. That shows you how inculcated into the economy oil actually is. It's not just a transportation fuel. It's so many, uh, it's you, oil is used in so many other things that we rely on, petrochemicals, pharmaceuticals, all kinds of things. And so when we shut the entire world down, we only saw demand fall by 9%. And so these are other recessions this is that early 80s recession. You see how much it fell. Um, I think this was uh, right after the Arab oil embargo, Arab-Israeli war, you know, 2008, 2009, the housing bubble bursting. So these are the times, you know, when we had these issues. Um, and so don't, and now we're, we're entering, we're entering a situation that you could have oil demand in the West falling as ESG mandates take hold, but in the developing world, with large populations, India, China, Indonesia, Bangladesh, the African continent, as these places enter their S curves of commodity demand, any falls in demand in the West are just gonna be taken up by um, demand increases in the developing world. And a lot of these countries are not as backwards as they were 10, 20, 30 years ago, okay? You get to a situation where India is now entering sufficient levels of wealth per capita where energy and other commodity demand starts to go uh, not exponential, but starts to rise tremendously. Kind of where China was 20 or 30 years ago is where India is at. So, you know, you don't, we don't think about these, these numbers. We don't think about, you know, whatever 200 million people in Bangladesh, 300 million people in Indonesia, you know, over a billion people in Africa, Nobody even talks about South America. So, you know, it's like, I think that 
longer term, like I said, you short term and medium term, you could have vacillation in the price, but I just don't see, and we see, you know, the sufficient investment hasn't been made to take care of this demand. So I thought this was very interesting. And so, of course, we're not going to do the right thing. Here's another example of the politicians. They don't learn from the past. Resurrecting policies that didn't work in the past to try to deal with this problem, um, which needs to be dealt with by the free market. And let these companies, you know, if we're going to over-regulate, if we're going to tell companies we're going to destroy their industry, we can't expect them to invest. So here's um, Senator uh, Ron Wyden of Oregon. He's obviously a Democrat. Uh, Biden ally floats 21% surtax on oil profits to blunt inflation. White House weighs oil profit tax, but wary of supply impact. Of course, they should be. It doesn't work. They know this, but they have to do something politically because they're crashing in the polls. And they are, let's see, it's June, July, August, September, October. You've basically got 120, 130, 140 days till the congressional election. People are not going to forget. People are already going to vote these people out. Okay, so they're trying to limit the damage to the congressional election. And then hopefully, you know, I don't know what they're trying to do, but this, this isn't going to work. Oil companies that record a profit margin better than 10% would face a new federal surtax under a plan developed by a key senator as Democrats in the White House struggle to curb US energy costs and broader inflation. The proposal by Senator Ron Wyden, an Oregon Democrat who chairs the Tax Writing Finance Committee, would mean oil companies face federal taxes of as much as 42% on profits considered excessive. See, that Ron Wyden, who doesn't know anything about the energy industry, has determined that a 10% profit margin uh, is, is the max that you should be able to get until you endure excessive taxes. Now, these are cyclical industries, as I've said before, for you people that don't understand economics. Where was Ron Wyden when the, um, this is the reason why a lot of refineries got shut down during the coup, because they became very unprofitable. And so economic decisions were made. Was Ron Wyden looking at long-term energy policy and saying, look, we can't shut these refineries down because eventually the coup will go away and demand will come back. We'll have insufficient refining capacity. No one saw that. But now, you know, because he's, you know, wants to run, you know, wants to limit the damage, we have to, do, somebody needs to do something because the hoi polloi are demanding, somebody needs to do something. There ought to be a law. And so this is what you get. The problem isn't Ron Wyden, the problem is the populace in general. Wyden has yet to release this pan publicly, and he'd likely need all 50 in the Senate Democratic Caucus to support it in order to overcome United Republican opposition. He's among several Democratic lawmakers, including Senator Sheldon Whitehouse and Representative Peter DeFazio, who have discussed targeting what they consider, what they consider, the Soviet apparatchiks consider, excessive oil company profits. They need those excessive profits to get them through the inevitable downswings in the industry. This refining industry is a terrible business most of the time. And so the two years out of 10 that you have excessive profits gets you through the other eight years and allows the rest of us to have relatively cheap in the long term and ubiquitous access to fuels. You know, people should go to these developing world countries and go to areas where there's no fuel or the lights just randomly go off because, you know, they don't have sufficient supply of energy. You'll find that it's not a pleasant place way to live. Quote, the proposal I'm developing would help reverse perverse incentives to price gouge mm -hmm. by doubling the corporate tax rate on companies' excessive profits. Again, who's to say what's excessive? Is 9% not excessive, but 10% is? Why not 15%? Why not 20%? What about other companies like Apple or these other companies that make consumer products? Are their profits excessive? Eliminating egregious buybacks and reducing accounting tricks, Wyden said about the proposal he plans to introduce in the coming weeks. By contrast, companies that provide relief to consumers by either reducing prices or investing in new supply would not be affected. The net result of this is going to be less supply if it passes. I don't think it'll pass, but um, if it does, the net result will be less supply and higher prices. That's it. And then once you take a lot of these supply off the market, it won't come back ever. 
regardless of the price, because the political environment is not conducive uh, to do it. People, people that are making these economic decisions do not trust. There's no certainty. There's no trust that the government's not going to come in and take the profits. It's that simple. That's why the developing world, a lot of these places are basket cases. You go in, you make a billion dollar investment, you have a deal with the government, and then they change the deal on you. This is the problem. So link to this article. So the IEA, the UN, and World Bank seek to limit the spread of air conditioning in developing nations to reduce CO2 emissions. Only 8% of the 2.8 billion people living in the hottest parts of the world have air conditioning. The hypocrisy is mind-boggling. I'll put a link to the article. Of course it is. Of course it is. Why don't, if you want to, if you want to get rid of uh, CO2, then okay, let's limit air conditioning in the United States and in Europe. Now, Europe doesn't have as much air conditioning, I don't think, as the U.S., but can you imagine Florida, the Gulf Coast, Texas, Arizona, even like places on the East Coast in the summertime get brutally hot in these apartments. You see all these window-mounted units in these older buildings. Let's get rid of air conditioning. Watch how fast the politics... But if it's all about CO2, it's all about saving the planet, and when you have 10 years and everybody has to sacrifice, you have to sweat. That's just how it is. You'll lose weight. You'll be healthier. It'll be like a sauna. Saunas are very, very healthy to get the dirt and grime and poisons out of your body. So we should all have a big sweat because CO2. Do you see how that? Do you see how evil these people are? Do you see how hypocrite? How much of hypocrites they are? So why are we listening to them? Believe me, the people in India, Bangladesh, they're going to keep putting air conditioners on. Okay, whether the IEA, the UN, and the World Bank are involved not do you not understand that we are shifting away from this unipolar world with these ridiculous bureaucracies telling people what to do that's part of it if you haven't picked up on this you are going to not be successful over the next coming decades the world is, the, the, the world is shifting under your feet they can make all the proclamations they want these countries are not going to listen to them it's over and 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 and, and as people get more confidence that they can buck these systems they get more confidence that they don't have to go along with the West on the, on the nonsense. They're going to become more emboldened. Okay. The West is declining. It is weakening. The East, the Eurasian landmass is awakening. Okay. That's what's happening. And if you haven't picked up on this vibe, this is just a little vignette. You really think that, you know, as people get wealthier in India and these other places, Indonesia, these tropical environments are not going to install air conditioning. You're out of your mind. It's going to happen. They don't care about CO2. They think clearly. They're not, they're not worshiping the earth in these places. They're hot. They want air conditioning. Okay, guys, that's it for this week. Um, again, we're in a period of that we've talked about. It's brutal. It's not fun. It's disheartening. Uh, I can't tell you what to do. I can't tell you to hold. I can't tell you to sell. I can't tell you to buy the dip. This is individual uh, understanding okay of your particular circumstance and temperament what i will say is is that i think a lot of the fundamental things that we've talked about in the past around energy are still there in the short and medium term things can you know in a bear market most of the companies are going to go down that doesn't mean that the long-term fundamental trends are not in place but that doesn't mean you just you know stand there when somebody throws a safe out of a 10-story building and try to catch it you wait and you uh, wait for it to hit the ground, and then you open it up, okay? And then what I mean by that is there'll be times to buy. Maybe this isn't the time. Cash is good. Cash gives you optionality. Cash gives you choices. So uh, think about it. Um, happy to answer questions in the comments as best I can. But again, think about, if you haven't done it, writing down your investment thesis, your why you bought a stock, what's the thing? You know, you can differentiate between buying physical uranium, which I have advocated for, especially when it's at a discount, because I think long-term there's not sufficient investment for where we're going with nuclear power and buying crap goes that have no earnings and no, now you're seeing those get liquidated because in the liquidity, those are the first companies that get liquidated. Okay. It's very conceivable that we could go to $200 a pound uranium over the next, over this decade. And a lot of those crap companies will not participate. They, they could go down 90, 
100% go out of business because they have no earnings. They have no, you know, the first things, speculation is getting pulled out of the market, okay? Speculative frenzy is being pulled out of the market. Liquidity is drying up. That's what you're seeing, what you're seeing. You know, you even had a company this week sign a contract for their offtake and the stock, you know, went up a little bit, okay? So even good news is getting sold off. So just be aware of what's going on. Be aware that you have to pick your spots. Take money down. You had a guy that told me in the Discord this week, he bought a company that we talked about publicly, Athabasca. I think he sold it. He said he sold uh, part of it when he had a 3x gain. A 3x gain is pretty good, you know, in a year or so. Uh, he sold it, a lot of it, and then he kept some more, and it's run even further. There's nothing wrong with doing that. You're not going to catch the exact tops and bottoms, guys. And if you have excessive profits, if you have 100, 200, 300% gains, don't be afraid to take some down. It's not, you know, this, this is, uh, should be a lesson, this drawdown that we're having now for people. Okay, guys, that's it for this week. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks.